From the School of International Service at American University in Washington, this is Big World, where we talk about something in the world that truly matters. Today, we're talking about pop culture and international relations. I'm Kay Summers, and I'm joined by Patrick Thaddeus Jackson. Patrick is a professor in the School of International Service. He teaches, he researches international relations, or IR theory, the role of rhetoric in public life, and most critical to our conversation today, pop culture and IR. I also know from working with Patrick that he places a tremendous value on teaching and learning. He's one of the founders of the international relations blog, Duck of Minerva, and really importantly for today, he's a sci-fi geek. Patrick, thanks for joining Big World. Thanks. It's going to be fun. I want to spend a couple of minutes establishing your bona fides in this fan space. This is very important. This is so important. It's the most important thing we're going to do. First, have you ever dressed in garb in public? Yes. <laughs> and and not just on Halloween. Okay. So. <laughs> very, also important, right? Mm-hmm. Have you ever attended a fan convention or a comic con? Uh, several. Several. <laughs> Can you put a number on it? Okay. <laughs> It's more than 10. Um, what is the most impressive toy or action figure you own? Oh, my goodness. The most impressive. I have a, I have a number of really, really cheesy Jar Jar things. Oh. Just because, awesome. you know, Jar Jar is such a, an interesting character He's to begin with. He's a lightning rod. Yes. And, and so if you're going to grab any Jar Jar things, you want like the, the limited edition Taco Bell Jar Jar Binks oh, squirter sure. yeah. from one of the initial episode one previews. And I found that in an antique shop uh, a couple of years ago. And they're like, oh, you know, this is, nobody wants this. I'm like, I'll give you five bucks for it. <laughs> I'm like, five Don't bucks? Don't ask me questions. It's like, okay, I'll just, I'll just take it. I, no, no problem at all. No problem at all. <laughs> Though probably my favorite one, and this is something a student made for me one year, there's a, an action figure of Obi-Wan Kenobi in Clone Wars Get Up, um, except the head of the action figure is 3D printed from a picture of me. Oh, wow. So it is me as Obi-Wan um, that sits upstairs on my desk. That Place of honor. That, that sounds uh, cool. That, 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 I guess if I had to choose, in terms of action figures in particular, that would be the one I would go for. That's a good one. That's, no one else is going to have that. All right, very seriously, I say that we talk about things that matter on this podcast. So tell us why an examination of pop culture and IR matters. Well, I think there's two reasons. Um, One of them is because, as psychologists and sociologists have been telling us for a long time, people develop their sensibility about the world, not necessarily from dry, abstract academic texts or lectures, but from entertainment, from reading, from from watching television programs and and movies and such, particularly in the kind of media-saturated environment that we live in nowadays. I think more people pick up their understanding of otherness and diversity from watching popular representations of them than they do from reading philosophical texts mm-hmm. about popular diversity or taking classes on you know diverse experiences or whatever. Not that those classes and the scholarship is unimportant, but in terms of direct uh, transmission or the material that people use to kind of build their sense mm-hmm. of the world, I think that is an important vector. Not the only one, obviously, people pick things up their moral sense of the universe also from you know things like attending religious services mm-hmm. and and you know the participation in politics and so on but i think that pop culture angle is really important in particular because it's a source of metaphors and the metaphors that people then draw from different kinds of popular culture uh, franchises and artifacts then circulate through these other sorts mm-hmm. of spaces my favorite example being the republicans for voldemort bumper sticker <laughs> 
which is a bumper sticker that makes perfect sense if you know Harry Potter Mm -hmm. and if you are not a Republican. But if you don't know Harry Potter, then you don't really understand what's being said there. It becomes a really useful way of transmitting and telegraphing a certain Mm -hmm. uh, sense of reality by using a a piece of of common reference point. And, of course, good politicians have known this forever, so they'll sprinkle things into their speeches, whether it's drawn from a piece of of popular culture, science fiction-type things, or whether it's drawn from other kinds of of, of cultural notions. Um, I think that that's that's really just important empirically. I also think it's really important for scholars and students of international affairs to take pop culture seriously because what a good novelist a good artist is doing is though not exactly the same as what a scholar is doing they're certainly wrestling with similar kinds of materials and there are things i think that we can learn from how a novelist or a filmmaker wrestles with the same sorts of topics and questions that we scholars or we students wrestle with so sort of two different angles of why i think it's important and you've written a lot about this and you've written that the intersection of politics and speculative fiction can be an irresistible area of conversation for some political scientists. I know that there are a variety of approaches to this intersection. Would you briefly describe two that you write about, the internalist and the externalist approaches? Yes. So this is a a fundamental distinction when, when we try to think about this. The externalist approach to thinking about popular culture would suggest that culture, cultural products, cultural artifacts are simply uh, functions of the context in which they find themselves. So Star Trek, if we want to talk about Star Trek in the 1960s, we would look at what's going on in politics and and economics and and culture and such during the 1960s and say Star Trek is just a translation of those things. Mm -hmm. So externalist approaches tend to be kind of reductionist Mm -hmm. about pop culture. An internalist approach, which I generally more a fan of would suggest that instead a popular cultural artifact is a contribution to a conversation. Mm -hmm. So instead of simply being reducible to sets of background conditions, so when, say, sticking with the Star Trek example, when you have Star Trek episodes that are clearly playing with the kinds of things that are going on in U.S. foreign policy, questions of intervention, you know, there's several Star Trek episodes in the old series that are very much kind of about Vietnam Mm -hmm. or or similar to what's going on in Vietnam. Instead of explaining those as saying, this is just a translation of what's going on in the quote-unquote real world, treat what Star Trek is doing as an element of a conversation about what we are and should be doing Mm -hmm. in a place like Vietnam. Um, Now, that's the way certainly Roddenberry and other folks who were involved in creating Star Trek thought about what was going on, that Star Trek was supposed to be a way of dramatizing and a way of getting people to think about these things. The externalist approach would mean we couldn't really take that seriously because we'd simply reduce the, the science fictional or other fantasy product to... Uh, just a, a function of, of broader phenomena rather than a contribution. We're going to hit on a few uh, fandoms now. So we're going to start with everyone's favorite, Star Wars. Um, Certainly mine. I know. I'm, I'm looking at a Washington Post monkey cage piece that you co-wrote in 2015. Mm-hmm. 2015, just to set the time for everybody. So you wrote that real-world comparisons to Star Wars fall short because they fail to recognize that within the Star Wars universe, there's a dichotomy of dark versus light driving everything. So Emperor Palpatine isn't just another politician. He's an evil Sith Lord. So he's going to do evil things. 
And we have to realize that he's not doing it because he's seeking leverage in the next election. He does evil things because he subscribes to a philosophy that power is the only thing worth having. Anger is the best emotion to channel. People's emotions exist only for him to manipulate. And he's evil. And he shoots force lightning from his fingers, right? I mean, there's rules. Oh, yeah. So am I paraphrasing that argument correctly? That, uh, that's absolutely correct. <laughs> absolutely correct. So it was 2015 when you wrote that. Yes. Which feels like a bit of a different world from this side of 2015. <laughs> so in the past couple of years, I, I believe that we've seen a move toward more of an evil versus good dichotomy in the ways that people describe our politics. We have a good chunk of Americans who don't just think that our current president is wrong. They think he's evil and they think he's committed to breaking down the structures of our representative democracy. So I don't know if this is even possible, but can you say, are we closer to a Star Wars world now? Mm, that's a that's a good question. Um I don't think I would say that we as a whole are closer to a Star Wars world because the universe in Star Wars, as with other elements of fantasy, and, and yes, I'm calling Star Wars a fantasy rather than science fiction because <laughs> Star Wars takes place like Lord of the Rings takes place in a, 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 a cosmos, right? A, a, a right. morally ordered reality. In the Star Wars universe, like in Lord of the Rings, there are things that are good and evil. And really, even if there's ambiguity, there's not the ambiguity gets sort of straightened out in the course of the plot. Right. So, you know, Luke is unsure about what the dark side or the light side is saying, but we, the audience, kind of figure out what's supposed to happen and the plot leads us to be able to figure this out right. um similar to that scene in lord of the rings where boromir is like we should take the ring and all the if you're reading the book you're like no don't take the ring yeah, because like it. it's evil you don't take it the backdrop that allows that to be the case is that the universe itself is morally charged mm -hmm. in order for our world to be more like the star wars universe we would have to say that our world was morally charged mm -hmm. and what we have in our actual reality differently than in these novels is much more controversy about mm -hmm. how the charging works and what the moral boundaries of things are. In a fantasy universe, in important ways, there's no ambiguity. I would argue that sci-fi is closer to our world because we're never quite sure in our actual reality whether or not there's transcendent moral value in things. And those moments where they happen are individuated and contested, unlike in a fantasy universe where suddenly the the blinders drop and there is actual power that you're in touch with and it's become sort of incontrovertible. Patrick, it's time to take five. Time to reorder the world as you'd like it to be. If you could right now single-handedly institute five policies or practices that would change the world for the better, what would they be? specifically for you, what five things would you change in the study of international affairs? <sighs> Only five. Goodness. Only five. Because <laughs> I can think of so many that I would change. Okay, the first thing I would change is I would relax what you would might call the scientism of so much of our academic study, where often people who work on pop culture or people who want to use pop culture artifacts in their teaching have to be put on the defensive because, oh, that's not science. Um, scholarship on international affairs should be understood more broadly than just being the science part. So the second thing I would change is I would in institute a clearer understanding among international studies scholars of both the benefits and limitations of a scientific approach. Mm -hmm. We get very unclear about what these things are. We toss the word science around without really putting any real philosophical weight behind it. 
sometimes perhaps even reading novels about science might be a mm-hmm. better way of getting people into this so they can see what the, the difference are b- between these things. And then th- that would set up third, drawing more clear boundaries between different kinds of knowledge of international affairs. We have scholarly knowledge, but we also have artistic knowledge, we have ethical knowledge, we have practical knowledge. And these are not necessarily the same thing. Mm -hmm. We should appreciate that these are different and not try to reduce them all to each other. And we should, we need as many different ways of knowing about the challenges facing the world um, as we can possibly get our hands on. So confining them all to one strikes me as a huge problem. Four, I would mandate that everybody in international affairs learn how to read at a level sufficient that they can process scholarly arguments. Not just one, but at least two other languages. Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the non-English language world, and because English has become the lingua franca of so much of academic debate, um, and yes, it's greatly ironic that English is the lingua franca rather than (laughs) language language Anglica, but um, Scholars who speak English have a bit of a structural uh, advantage. Mm-hmm. Everybody else has to speak English. So my fifth point would be, in addition to scholars reading other languages and having conversations in other languages, they should uh, have a certain openness to the plurality of ways in which international affairs is conceptualized beyond that Euro-American mm-hmm. core. Um, and this loops back to the first couple of things I was saying because uh, often those distinctions that we draw between science and art or science and practice are not as firmly drawn in other places as they are in some of our academic institutions and some of our philosophical debates for very specific kind of historical reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we go into those other situations with those firm boundaries in mind, then we're going to miss stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think missing stuff is a problem. I think we should be broader so that we actually can encounter what it is that's being said. And then we can have some really interesting discussions about it. We're not at that point yet. We don't really have those engagements. But overall, all five of those things would be, at least for me, about trying to promote broader engagements within international studies globally. Thank you. So how about uh, Battlestar Galactica? And I'm talking about the 2004 reboot, not the original. Good. In Battlestar Galactica, we see a series that appears at first blush to be about artificial intelligence gone wrong. But the longer the show goes on, the more it becomes about a lot more. There were themes about cycles of violence that never end. There was this question of who was here first and who gets to claim that they own the world when you find out that Cylons were an ancient species. There's this thread of religious conflict that I really thought was a red herring. I thought this was not going anywhere. And then it stayed in the plot forever. It was monotheism versus polytheism versus atheism. And there was this overwhelming theme of migration, which just lays over everything. What is home and who gets to decide what you get to call home? So is there anything you think we can take from the BSG universe as we grapple with contemporary issues surrounding religion and migration? Is there any, is there any application at all for us there? Well, it depends what you mean by application. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a mistake to look, at, look to pop cultural products for, for the policy answers. Recommend- for answers or for policy recommendations, right. you know. I mean, it worked in Middle Earth, so why <laughs> won't it work here? That's not really that the way. That is solid reasoning. Totally. <laughs> Totally, right? Sure, obviously, right? So the Federation once did this, and so therefore we should have the following sets of development policies. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure that's the best way to go about it, and certainly there are people who would like to. Um, But 
the way I think is is more helpful to approach this, to think about what we take away. What we take away from reading a fictional text that is grappling with some of these issues is a more nuanced sense of the dimensions of the issue. Right. So with Battlestar Galactica, one of my favorite moments in this is there's a specific episode midway through the series where the humans are all basically in a refugee camp that the Cylons are running. Mm -hmm. And there's debate among the Cylons about whether this is part of God's plan and what they should be doing with respect to the humans. Some want to eliminate all the humans. Some, no, we got to save the humans. The, The humans are also having these sets of debates internally. And what some of them have come to realize is the only way that you can actually strike a blow against this terrible, overwhelming enemy is suicide bombing. And if you look at the time when this was done and you look at what else is going on in the world and what this is dialoguing with, that moment brings an audience who probably otherwise wouldn't think suicide bombing was an acceptable military tactic mm-hmm. and would be inclined to condemn it in moral terms and say, wait a minute, maybe, wow, gosh, I never really thought about that. Mm-hmm. But these characters that I've been identifying with, suddenly they're in that situation mm-hmm. and they're coming to that conclusion. And it's really hard to argue with them because it's a very compelling case. What does that do? It doesn't necessarily give us policy recommendations, but it does mean that the next time... a one of those people who's watched this goes into a conversation about terrorism and about suicide bombing, they are going to hopefully be able to think about it a little more broadly. It's like meeting a really interesting person. You've changed, you've been changed somehow Mm -hmm. in the meeting, but as Ursula Le Guin once said, it's hard to say how it's hard to say how you've been changed, but you have been. That's an excellent pivot. Because we're going to talk about Ursula Le Guin right now. And I know that she is uh, near and dear to your teaching heart. So I I'm not going to pretend that I have a ton of familiarity here. I've just read The Left-Handed Darkness, and based on that, I'm really excited to read more, particularly in the Hainish cycle, because I'd like to read more about this world. But research about her tells me that Ursula Le Guin was known for world-building, unusual social structures that challenge our concepts of gender and cultural identities. And it led to the critique that she was a soft science fiction writer. Mm -hmm. The critique, as I understand it, is that the most fantastical aspects of her science fiction, like the role of gender and sex in the left hand of darkness or oligarchy versus anarchy in the eye of the heron, are only, and I'm quote fingering only here, explorations of social sciences rather than technology or engineering, which I guess in that critique is inherently superior. So two questions. First, what do you think of the soft science fiction label? And second, what do you make of this critique of Ursula Le Guin and her work? I think... Anyone who uses the hard versus soft science fiction label needs to go back and take a little gender studies 101. <laughs> um, it's pretty obvious, right? It, it's, it's a very, very clear gender binary mm-hmm. polarity of, of the, the, the hard stuff versus the soft mm-hmm. stuff. It seems to me that science fiction that takes social science as a point of departure is just as science fiction-y as science, the science fiction that takes natural science mm-hmm. as a point of departure. To me, the real power of the genre of science fiction is the speculative way that it allows us to explore questions of selves and others, which is why you end up with aliens uh, being a really interesting sort of site for this, but also the futural setting being about future humans. What does it look like if we develop in particular kinds of ways? So mm-hmm. there is a there's a speculative thought experiment aspect to this. Mm-hmm. So I think that Le Guin clearly is basing a lot of what she's doing on 
notions in anthropology, notions in sociology, notions in gender studies is kind of what she's engaging with. She ends up, there's a story cycle that she writes about a planet called O in which the form of marriage, it's four people, mm-hmm. two male, two female. They have to be from different sub parts of the population and it's very complicated to put them together and so on and then she writes multiple stories which are just like so what would the implication of that look like what would that world what would that world look like that's kind of cool i think that's cool because it gives us a way of reflecting on our own understanding Mm -hmm. of how we think marriage and family work and the way we've built up a set of political and social arrangements around a notion of what counts as acceptable marriage Mm -hmm. um that isn't the sort of thing you're going to get if you then take 20 pages to go talk about the internal dynamics of the flux capacitor or whatever. Right. But certainly Le Guin does some of that. Mm-hmm. This is kind of to sum it all up here, um, kind of bringing this discussion to a con- conclusion. Issues of morality and revenge, major drivers in most science fiction plots. As you look at our current political situation pulling back out, what do you believe will most affect future science fiction writers? We talked about Star Trek, for example, you know, having episodes that were clearly based on Vietnam. What do you think is going to most affect future science fiction writers? And do you think we're going to be the good guys or the bad guys? Huh. The good thing about science fiction as a genre is you often don't have to choose between the good guys and the bad Mm -hmm. guys. You can have things that are more ambiguous and you can explore the ambiguity of that. And I think that's the way that a future historian, let alone a future science fiction writer, is going to have to write about the sorts of things that we're going through now. It's a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, It's always a mixed bag. But I think the rise of a deliberate rejection of science and reason as a viable political position Mm -hmm. is the sort of thing that, although certain science fiction authors have occasionally sort of pondered it, they usually just introduce it to satirize it and say, well, obviously that's Mm -hmm. not what we're going to do. Um, I think future writers are going to have to take that a little bit more seriously. I also think, and we haven't talked much about the, the rise of social media and the way that's changed how we communicate with each other. I feel like future authors in terms of wrestling with these sorts of issues are going to have to deal with what you might call the epistemic flatness of social media. Things are just presented, they're just stated, and Mm -hmm. it's really unclear how you're supposed to deal with those things. And that really changes the, the the valence of a lot of these conversations. So we can't just assume that eventually the reason and the science will, will triumph because people will be scientific and reasonable. Maybe they won't. Mm-hmm. And maybe they will, but maybe they won't. Right. And that ambiguity opening that up, I think, is something is something really significant for authors to grapple with a little bit. Because, again, in sci-fi, you can't simply have God show up and fix it. Mm-hmm. Any novel or film or class or piece of newspaper or anything that puts you in the position of having to grapple Mm -hmm. with those issues, I think that is the way to go. To sit in the ambiguity, to sit in the discontent and and be content with it. Exactly. Exactly. Patrick Jackson, thank you for joining Big World. I have truly enjoyed it. Thanks. A lot of fun. Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our theme music is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Codeman. Until next time.